I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom Yulesman. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 27th, 2011. Coming up, journalist Judith Lewis Murnett talks about how small rural towns in the West are struggling to meet water quality regulations. And we'll look back on this year's major science, environment, and technology stories and what they pretend for the coming year. We begin with a brief look at some of the recent news in science. Today marks several noteworthy anniversaries. First, on this day in 1822, the French chemist Louis Pasteur was born. Most people knew him as the one who invented a method to stop milk and wine from making people sick. We know this process as pasteurization. Among Pasteur's other achievements, he created the first vaccine for rabies and anthrax. Also on December 27th, this time in 1831, Charles Darwin embarked on his journey aboard the HMS Beagle. On his five-year voyage, Darwin began to formulate the theory of evolution. Keep that in mind the next time you take a trip on a sailboat. Astronomers may especially appreciate this day. Going back further a few centuries, on December 27, 1571, German astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler was born. A key figure in the scientific revolution in the 17th century, Kepler is best known for his eponymous Laws of Planetary Motion. He also invented an improved improved version of the refracting telescope, called the Keplerian Telescope. NASA's Kepler mission, a massive project aimed at finding inhabitable planets besides ours, is also named after this German. Here's some relatively good news to cap the the year in science. Deaths caused by malaria have dropped by more than 25% in the last decade. The World Health Organization reported this month. The improvement is thanks to a coordinated attack on the disease, but progress is still tenuous. About 655,000 victims, mostly children, died of malaria in 2010 alone. That's a far cry from a million a year or so deaths a year ago, a decade ago. Africa showed the biggest gains. That's where most of the deaths occur and where funding from donors has been focused in the past few years since the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and the President's Malaria Initiative were created early in the decade. But the Global Fund is now severely cash-strapped. The $2 billion donors give each year is, about only, is only about a third of what's needed, according to the WHO report. The Environmental Protection Agency has been pressuring states to improve their water quality. Some cities are upgrading their sewage treatment facilities, and some farmers are scrambling to reduce runoff from fertilizer that gets into fields, streams, rivers, and groundwater. But the federally mandated water quality standards have brought some unintended consequences. They slap a disproportionately heavy burden on small communities throughout the West. Towns often can't afford to do what it takes to comply with the regulations. 
Judith Lewis Murnett, a journalist based in Venice, California, wrote an article in High Country News' December 12th issue on the subject. The story focuses on a town in New Mexico that's struggling to meet the EPA standards. But the story also addresses the clean water conundrum, as she calls it, as it affects many towns throughout the West. Judith is on the line to talk about her reporting from California and how the issue affects us all. Judith, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning, Susan. So give us a snapshot first of what these clean water standards are. What, what's different about them now? What, what's so vexing about them? Well, the water standard I dealt with in the story is called the Total Maximum Daily Load. And that's a part of the Clean Water Act that was really ignored for many years that would treat the problem in the water and not just the problem in the discharge. So the Clean Water Act up until then was just focused on stationary sources discharging pollutants into waterways and not the health of the water themselves. And, and in the, in the mid-1990s, environmentalists were frustrated with the pace of the Clean Water Act's ability to clean up our nation's water, and they found this provision in the Clean Water Act addressing total maximum daily loads. And could you and explain all, the, the total maximum daily yeah, loads? Yeah, so is... what that does is set a pollution limit for how much a water body, a river, a lake, uh, a, even a beach or a wetland can stand to bear. So states were obligated to go around and test and, and study their watersheds and determine which, which water bodies in those watersheds were polluted and what was polluting them and how much of each pollutant they could stand and still be a healthy waterway. And it's a complicated, burdensome, messy process, but it was very important to actually study the water itself. And these are pollutants ranging from nitrates from fertilizer to even air, what, all kinds of them, All right? kinds of things. So because it's for the state to decide, basically, what the pollutant is. Um, here in Los Angeles, there was a total maximum daily load set for trash, just simply trash in the, in the Los Angeles River. In Colorado, about 90% of the TMDLs are for the impacts of legacy mining. So um, the heavy metals are, and heavy metals and sediments are most of the, the total maximum daily load limits um, that would have been set in Colorado. In a lot of places where there's a lot of farmland and where there are a lot of septic systems, um, such as New Mexico, the total maximum daily load that's been set for a lot of waterways there is for nitrogen and phosphorus. Um, which comes from fertilizer runoff but also comes from sewage in the form of ammonia that turns into nitrogen and fuels algae growth in those waterways. So it seems that on the surface anyway, um, you know, the, the EPA's Clean Water Act is is quite noble, that there certainly is this um, increasing water quality problem throughout not just the West but throughout the nation, and yet it is bringing these unintended consequences. So just describe like how it's hitting this town you focused on, and then can you extrapolate that throughout the West? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that always happens with any kind of noble environmental legislation, that there are unintended consequences. And in this case, it's not always true. Um, this, you know, this, this action by environmentalists in the 1990s to get the EPA to start enforcing this provision of the Clean Water Act has had a lot of really beneficial impacts. But in small rural areas where there's just one, there's no way to enforce this pollution limit. It's just set, and it has to be written into a permit. Why is there, sorry, why is there no way to enforce it? Congress just didn't write one in. Mm -hmm. and, and that goes back 
to, you know, a lot of activism by governors, including Cecil Andrus in, Ohio, in Idaho and Jimmy Carter in Georgia, who said, we don't want the federal government enforcing these standards. Mm. We want to do it ourselves. So they left, Congress just left that an open question. So one of the ways it's enforced in states in California and in Colorado is the state has a permit. So the state gives the person who's the, the entity that's discharging into the waterway a permit to discharge into the waterway. And then they say, you can't, we're going to take away your permit unless you meet this pollution limit. In New Mexico, New Mexico doesn't issue its own permits. The EPA does that for New Mexico. So New Mexico sets the standard for how much nitrogen or phosphorus, in this case, the Mora River, which runs through an, a rural area, and this particular stretch of the Mora River. They set the standard for that. The EPA comes in and says, if you don't meet the standard, we're going to take away your discharge permit. Where there's only one or two permittees on that river. There's two, actually. One doesn't pollute at all. So is it a discrepancy from the beginning between the state and the federal standards? There isn't a, there isn't a federal standard. Mm. The standard is set by the state, and the enforcement is done by the federal government. So it does put the... Um, and, and the state and federal government, from what I have perceived talking to both agencies and really requesting a lot of information from Region 6 of the EPA, which often doesn't seem to have that information, there's not a lot of communication between the state and the federal government. What a surprise, that. huh? Yeah, right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this, this wastewater treatment plant, which is polluting. There's no doubt that that wastewater treatment plant in more New Mexico is polluting. And even the guy who's running it right now, Clarence Aragon, who's really a rural water activist in a lot of ways, he's done a lot to get other communities to establish sewer systems so at least, you know, the water is being treated to some standard before it's discharged. Even he would say, yeah, you know, we're polluting, but in order to not pollute to the standards, the EPA has set for this water agency, they would have to spend close to $7 million to build that system. And they don't exactly have a flush bank account. This is a poor community with 150 hookups. So we just have have to, um, they have 100, they serve about 1,000 customers with 150 hookups. And how does this, um, how does it bring us to Colorado? I know you said before that there isn't so much the problem with agriculture here in terms of water quality, it's more the legacy mines? Well, according um, to, you know, the, the, the Colorado Water Authority that, that does this work with the pollution limits, they, what they've decided is that the big problem is sediment and heavy metals. But everywhere you find a nutrient pollution problem, you find in a rural area, you find a wastewater treatment plant that has to bear the burden of of addressing that nutrient problem because it's the only way to get at it. So in Colorado, there's a town um, near the town of Granby in Grand County, Colorado. Right. The, the wastewater, the Three Lakes wastewater treatment plant there spent about $6 million in 2003 and 2004 to meet their total maximum daily load that was set for nutrients. And they accepted that. There happens to be a community that I think, you know, definitely has a lot more money and um, and I think spent more time in the decade leading up to that upgrading its system as it went along. They have a recreation industry to protect. Um, so they willingly did that, and they. but that's a lot of money for a small community to spend. Yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of them are in 
a bit of a trouble, and there's no uh, flesh bank accounts in any town, big or small. But um, So hopefully people can revisit, and we'll revisit the issue with you at some point. That would be great. So, Judith, thanks so much for coming to the show. That was journalist Judith lewis Murnett. You can Google her article by going to High Country News website, hcn.org. The interview marks the launch of a new relationship with High Country News, the Paonia, Colorado-based publication. We look forward to future interviews with its writers. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Tom Yulesman. So, Susan, I've been trying to come up with a word to describe uh, just what this year is like because uh, we're going to do a little review. And the word, I, corny word I keep coming up with is humdinger. It's been humdinger. quite a year. <laughs> no kidding. So it's time to reflect on this year's top milestone science, environment, and technology stories and to look ahead at what 2012 might bring. 2011 has certainly been a year of record-breaking natural and unnatural disasters and other developments on the science and environment front. And there's been some big developments in technology as well. To help me reflect on the past and project into the future, we've got a crystal ball here in the studio. I have in the studio, well, Tom Yulesman, my co-host. He is co-director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado. Welcome again. And Tom McKinnon, who's engineering today's show and is How on Earth's executive producer. And journalist Michael Cotis, who's journalist in town and is working on a book about megafires. And Shelley Schlender, who's longtime executive producer and uh, helping to engineer today's show and knows quite a bit about medical science. So welcome, everyone. Well, welcome, Susan. So how about if we start? I mean, probably no one would argue that extreme weather events, both in the U.S. and globally, has been huge devastating but huge michael how about if you start with um just a picture of what's going on in the u.s what has in the last year well the uh, the big story in the u.s of course at least in in this part of the world has been has been drought and uh, that has led to uh, uh, a series of record-breaking fires uh, particularly in the southwest uh, uh, arizona and new mexico and uh, texas all had their worst fire seasons on record. Uh, the uh, the Arizona fire was the largest. It was more than half a million acres in just one fire called the Wallow Fire, but it wasn't all that destructive. It was fairly remote. Um, and the New Mexico fire, which was uh, maybe a quarter that size, um, was also not terribly destructive. However, the Texas fires, which were much smaller, were incredibly destructive. In when- fact, you were there covering some of it and shooting photographs, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was both in New Mexico and in, in Texas. And I was down in Texas a couple of times for their fires. They had uh, they had uh, very serious fires back in the spring, and then they got them again uh, 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 significantly, at least for this area, on Labor Day, much like our four-mile fire last year. However, uh, the Bastrop fire, just one of these fires that broke out on Labor Day, destroyed uh, up, upwards of 1,600 homes, uh, and there were about a dozen fires uh, that broke out on Labor Day that were, uh, that were serious and caused a lot of property damage and a number of deaths. And uh, it, it, this was a, a, a banner year, if you will, for extreme weather, not just because of drought and heat waves. The number of billion-dollar weather and climate disasters in the United States overall during 2011 rose to 12 for the year to date, and we're not done yet, although we almost are. Uh, this record breaks the previous one of $9 billion weather and climate disasters during a single year. That was back in 2008. The damage, the total damage from these 12 events is approximately $52 billion U.S. dollars. 
Um, uh, globally, the deadliest weather disaster of 2011 has gotten very few headlines, a severe drought in Somalia, Kenya, and mm -hmm. Ethiopia that in the summer culminated in the first famine declared by the United Nations in nearly 30 years. Almost 30,000 children died in Som Somalia alone. 13 million people in East Africa are in need of food aid. Wow, that's huge. Right, and as you said, the UN declared it a famine. First one, uh, according to what I've read, in, in 30 years, the first official famine. I guess also there's a question of whether there's a connection to climate change, and that's a very complicated question because extreme weather has, has happened uh, long before we had an impact on the climate. Uh, but the bottom line answer is yes, there is a connection. In particular, heat waves are longer and hotter than they used to be. be. Uh, heavy rains are coming more frequently, and, and they're more intense. In many cases, rainfall records have been demolished, and all of this is uh, consistent with what climate scientists have long expected as a result of rising greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. And I know um, the International Panel on Climate Change, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, had their talk recently and, and again reiterated that link. And there was a November report that came out, and I think one of the quotes was, it's virtually certain that increases in the frequency of warm daily temperature extremes and decreases in cold extremes will occur throughout the 21st century on a global scale. And the uh, IPCC is coming out with its fifth assessment, I think not till 2013, but it seems like this is a, a huge issue in that context. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we talk about impacts, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continues to go up. Uh, CO2 reached 394 parts per million. That's almost 40 percent higher than the concentration at the start of the industrial era. There's really no surprise there. Uh, but there's a new estimate of CO2 emissions that was published earlier this month. It found that uh, the emissions soared nearly 6 percent in 2010. Uh, that's the largest increase ever recorded. Emissions in, uh, by China, the world's largest emitter of CO2, rose by more than 10 percent. And meanwhile, here in the U.S., ours uh, rose by 4 percent. Now, that's in 2010. There are no numbers yet for 2011, but that report for 2010 just came out recently. Does not bode well. And um, not to get too fixated on numbers, but does it look like, are scientists saying we could even reach 400 parts per million in the next year? Or next couple of years? Um, I don't think it would be within the next year, but um, we're certainly going to we're, we're going to reach 400 parts per million in the next few years and blow right through it. Uh, and it, you know, I think the, well, that thre that threshold sort of looms large in people's minds, but there's nothing special about it with regards to the climate. Uh, but nevertheless, we're going to get there pretty soon. Right. And Michael Kotis, you want to add anything? I know you recently went to Israel, looking at the sort of anniversary of the huge fire there, and what that bodes for. Yeah, uh, on the first day of Hanukkah last year, actually, uh, Israel suffered its worst, worst natural disaster in history, and that was a, a wildfire that they were very unprepared for that uh, killed 44 people, uh, all of them uh, uh, officials, uh, three of the top police officers in the country, and a group of prison guards and, uh, and firemen. And uh, they are looking at the climate issue very seriously. Uh, they, you know, most of their forests are planted, and uh, climate is having a huge impact on uh, the Aleppo pine. It's uh, the, locally called the Jerusalem pine, so it's very much a part of the Israeli identity, and it's uh, it's a tree that is uh, suffering greatly due to to uh, the increased frequency of drought in, in Israel, and uh, what they are starting to see is a process of desertification there. And is there much progress in terms of not just adaptation in a general sense, but actually sort of land management that seems to be improving things? Um, 
there's certainly a lot of potential for improvement, but it's not really something that they've looked at in the past. And uh, there's so much of their cultural identity tied up in their forests that it's been very slow to uh, to make any changes in uh, how they use uh, how they use their forests and how they manage their land. Well, thanks. Um, <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> and how about on the biomedical front, uh, Shelley Schlender? What do you think are some of the big stories there? Well, Susan, I think that Tom mentioned one of the biggest ones, which is the fact that malaria, we have some more chances to be fighting it. Some of the news in medical science has been more of the doom and gloom kind, actually, because we're finding more and more that scientific medical studies are suspect. There has been greater scrutiny of these scientific medical studies to say that it's very easy to skew the statistics to fit what a drug manufacturer, for instance, wants them to say, and that's happening more and more, and it's hard to control a big news story that happened this summer was that one of the big drugs for diabetes, which is a hugely escalating problem, Mm -hmm. Avandia, uh, basically got pulled from the market or almost pulled because the latest scientific studies are showing that the manufacturer was rather hiding the fact that it was killing more people than it was helping. So there, there are these kind of problems with some of the medications we have. On the good news side, there are some new kinds of ways that we're starting to look at how to look for disease and health by looking at small things in big numbers. One of those things is called proteomics. It's the counting of the proteins that express in your body based on which genes are expressing. So you may be worried that your genes dictate your fate, but actually what dictates your fate is which genes express. And there's a leading company here in Boulder called Somologics, Mm -hmm. where Larry Gold is going to go to the, uh, the American Association for Advancement of Science meeting to talk about what he's seeing about how to count those small numbers to help see what's happening with health and disease. Another group that's also going to be at the American Association for the Advancement of Science is Rob Knight's group, which is looking at the Human Microbiome Project. Well, looks like uh, we've got a big contribution from Boulder. That's great. And Tom, what about on the tech front? Okay, on the technology front, uh, my top story would be uh, Boulder's municipalization, which uh, sounds like a policy story, but uh, in fact, it's, uh, it's, I think, a big uh, shot in the arm for renewable energy. Uh, If we want to address the kind of climate change we've been hearing about, uh, from our other uh, speakers, we really have to uh, put some green technology into our grid, and Boulder's uh, uh, taking this, uh, this bold and uh, unfolding step uh, will we'll do that for community power. Well, we've got that and so much more. I know electric vehicles, you were saying, has also been big. Certainly, we didn't get a chance to talk about Fukushima. Um, we have in previous shows, but the biggest nuclear disaster since Chernobyl in 1986 and what it bodes for nuclear power here and elsewhere. So thanks, Tom Mulesman, my co-host, Tom McKinnon, Michael Kotis, for all your thoughts and insights. And uh, we'll surely revisit these and other critical issues in 2012 as they don't seem to be going away. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Coulter. And Tom McKinnon was our engineer today with help from Shelley Schlender. You can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time. Don't worry about it. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and find us there. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom Yulesman.